Then Jesus asked, What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Again, he asked, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Luke 13, 18 through 21. This is the word of God. God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this beautifully chilly morning. Thank you for these people gathered today. I pray that as we hear the word today that you would help it to really affect us, help us to really think about it, not only now, but later in the day. Help us to be changed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The year is 1970, and a 19-year-old pre-med student had immigrated from Bolivia to attend university. His name, Julio Ruibal. He had heard about these things called crusades, which, if you aren't from that time, um, was essentially this event geared towards evangelism, where an, uh, a, an evangelistic preacher would rent out a stadium and all of these people would be invited to come and hear the good news. The most famous of the crusades is the likes of Billy Graham. And uh, he comes to this crusade in uh, his local city. And there, he has an encounter with Jesus. And he comes to faith. So excited about what God was doing in him, he comes back the next week to that crusade. But when he shows up, he's too late. They've already shut the stadium doors because they've reached capacity. And there's thousands of people waiting outside with him burdened that these people standing on the outside would not hear the message that he has heard. He pulls out this folding lawn chair, stands on it, and preaches the message that he had heard the day or the week before. And something remarkable happens. More people come to faith outside of the stadium than those who are inside of the stadium uh, at this crusade. And the woman hosting the crusade um, gets word that there's this revival breaking out outside of the event that she is holding, and she rejoices in it. When Julio finishes uh, college, he returns to his home of Bolivia. And there, compelled by this man Jesus, he starts to lead his friends to Jesus. And there's this miraculous gift on his life of healing. And he begins to pray for people, just simply ask that Jesus would heal him, and Jesus does. And so word gets out in the city of La Paz that there's this 19-year-old man who'd pray to Jesus, and people would be healed. And so people start bringing friends and family members, and Jesus begins to heal them. Word gets all the way up to the present of Bolivia, whose wife is sick, and he asks Julio to come and pray for her. So Julio shows up, he prays for her. And she is healed. And the president, blown away, says, whatever you want, you got it. He writes him a blank check, which if this were you, a poor student from Bolivia, what would you ask for, (laughs) right? Your mansion's pretty nice, dude. I mean, I could just take a room there, right? What would you say? He responds in kind and says this. All I ask for is you let me use the largest stadium in the city and you give me two weeks of radio time to announce it. That's all that I ask. And so he does. Two weeks later, 30,000 people fill the stadium. And there is an additional 15,000 people waiting outside of the stadium to hear the news about this man, Jesus, who has the power to heal. um, Six months later, after this moment, The Bolivian church is born. There was no church, no space to meet, so thousands would meet in local parks. And Julio, overwhelmed by the growth of the church, started to equip the group by uh, teaching 12 teenagers a message. And then he would send these 12 teenagers to the park to just verbatim preach the message that he just preached to them. 
And so as a new convert, gathering even newer converts to go and to share the message of Jesus, all these people gathered in the parks. This, brothers and sisters, is a story of revival. It broke out in the place called La Paz in Bolivia. Not only were there commitments to faith, but they saw a dramatic decrease in poverty and crime, and thousands came to know Jesus. Today, there is a Christian presence in Bolivia because of Julio Roybal. And there are churches planted all throughout the world that were sent from La Paz because of the work God did through Julio. This whole story begins with a teenager transformed by the message of Jesus with the burden to share that message. Now, we hear stories like this and says, like, that sounds dope. Like, that's cool, right? But isn't this like an anomaly? Isn't this just something like strange that happens? Actually, it's not. This is in line with the way that God has always worked throughout history and continues to work today. Every great move of God is born in unknown places through unlikely people. Why? Because the kingdom of God is small but powerful, hidden but advancing. This morning we begin a new series entitled In Your Mist. If I were to give a sentence to capture the heart of our series, it would be this. To notice and celebrate the areas where God is moving among us and to respond as a community into all of the areas that God is inviting us into. And this whole series is born out of an interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. Luke 17 says this, Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Another way to phrase the question the Pharisees asked Jesus is this, is this it? Is this it? Is this all that it's cracked up to be, this kingdom that you say is coming? All throughout Jesus' teachings, Jesus used the phrase, the kingdom of God. Um, in almost all of Jesus' parables and all of his teachings, he's teaching everybody what the kingdom of God is like. And the Pharisees have been watching his life closely and listening to his teaching carefully. Now, if you were to look over all of Jesus' teachings over and over and over again, he's, he's, he's beating the drum of the kingdom of God. Now, this phrase does not exist in a vacuum, but it was actually loaded for the Jewish people. This idea about the kingdom of God is a shorthand of referencing the whole biblical narrative. The idea of the kingdom of God begins on page one of the Bible in the Genesis narrative and carries all the way through. Now, what I normally love to do in moments like this is trace that theme all the way through. We've done that about like 20 times as a church, so I won't do that to you again today. I might again in the future. There's no promises, but I won't do it to you again today. But here's it in a nutshell. Um, when the story of the scriptures open up, God invites human beings to rule, to have dominion, to partner with him in ruling and reigning here on earth. But as human beings, we wanted to seize autonomy. We wanted to choose to define good and evil on our own terms. And the whole biblical narrative is a story where we see human beings choose to build their own kingdom. Kingdoms marked by corruption, greed, violence, and death, or what the biblical authors call sin. And all throughout the story, there's these little moments where the Jewish people would look forward to the day of a coming king, the one they called the Anointed One, or the Mashiach, or the Messiah, who would come as king and bring about the kingdom of God, where God would rule and reign on earth again. And so onto the scene comes Jesus, and he says, the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is on the way. Now, this was super confusing to the Jewish leaders. Why? Because not much has changed since Jesus had got there. 
Sure, some people got healed. Sure, some poor people got fed. But what about Rome? What about these oppressive rulers in place? What about this kind of cosmic evil and, and corruption and forces that are bent towards destruction? These have not been dealt with. So if this is the kingdom, is this it? The question they beg is, you keep talking about the kingdom. When is it coming? And Jesus' response to them is brilliant. He says at least three things. First, his kingdom is not like other kingdoms. Second, his kingdom is both now and not yet. And third, his kingdom is realized in him. First, his kingdom is not like other kingdoms. The kingdom of Jesus is utterly unlike any other kingdom of this world. The reason that you would not be able to perceive it or in the language of Jesus say, here it is or there it is, is because Jesus' kingdom is not like any other kingdom. It does not come through military power or force. It is not fueled by greed and lust and worldly wisdom. Jesus brings an upside-down kingdom, a kingdom that prioritizes the poor, the marginalized, the sick, a kingdom that if you want to be first, you're last. If you want to be someone of notoriety, you become a servant. And the kingdom of God does not be, become uh, or begin, rather, in halls of power, but in the margins of society. The kingdom of God is not like any other kingdom. Second, the kingdom is both now and not yet. We learned a fancy word last week, inaugurated eschatology, right? You want to bring that one out at brunch, trust me. And that's just a really kind of snobby way of saying the kingdom has begun in Jesus. That what we await for has already begun, but is not yet fully realized. That the kingdom of God is breaking in and advancing, but has not fully permeated the earth yet. This is why Jesus, Jesus teaches us to pray that God's kingdom would come, his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom has come in Jesus, but it's still on the way. And so um, the enemies of God are being defeated and being overthrown, and this is all happening through the people we call the church who have given their allegiance to this king and who are citizens of this coming kingdom. And third, the kingdom is realized as him, in him. This phrase is interesting, in your midst. Some of your translations may actually say the kingdom of God is within you. Now, that's not a bad translation, uh, but I think, there's, I think in your midst is a better one. And for my Bible nerds, give me just a few minutes here to explain why. First is a matter of interpretation. If you hear the line, the kingdom of God is within you, I think it brings up ideas about like self-realization or that the kingdom is merely an internal reality. It's this inward sense of peace or hope. Um, it's subjective and it's personal. I think it also lends itself towards individualism, like if the kingdom of God is within me, um, it means that I can have all that I need within my own um, relationship with myself. And all of these things are not what Jesus is talking about here. Second is a matter of language. Uh, first, it's not singular but plural. He doesn't say the kingdom of God is within you as an individual. He says the kingdom of God is within y'all. And so it's within the, the community of people, not within just simply an individual, but in the midst of a group or between a group of people would be a better way to say that. And third is the audience. Remember who Jesus is talking to here, the Pharisees. So is Jesus going to say that the kingdom is in them who they're unable to perceive the very kingdom that he's looking for? No. And so what he's saying is it's in the midst of you. It's in your presence. Jesus himself is in their midst, and he is the actualization of the kingdom of God. Fred Craddock, a scholar, says this, the presence of Jesus is the presence of the kingdom, and the signs of it, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them. These conditions mark the presence of God's reign in the world. The kingdom, said Jesus, is in the midst of you. I think when Jesus says this, it's kind of with a wink, like you're looking at it, man. It's here. It's realized in me. Now, if we are honest, can we be honest this morning? Some of you are like, no, I'm going to lie. All right, you do you. Yes, let's be honest. We can relate to the Pharisees' question. 
You hear somebody like me come up here and say, the kingdom of God is here. And you're like, where? (laughs) Work is hard. The world seems to be a dumpster fire that continues to get bigger and bigger and bigger as the days go on. I look around my city and see uh, people on fentanyl and a homeless crisis and an epidemic. Where is the kingdom of God? It's easy to look out into our world and feel defeated, fearful, disappointed. Like if God's kingdom is actually breaking in, why does it look like this? The short answer is this. We live in difficult times and in contested spaces. It is easy for us to begin to judge the kingdom of God by merely human metrics, metrics of worldly power and force, but this puts us in the same danger as those who miss the kingdom of God in their day, looking for God to break in the way they want him to. It is entirely possible for us to miss seeing the kingdom of God breaking in our midst because we're looking in the wrong places. First, we can miss the kingdom of God Because we are looking for a certain kind of kingdom, a specific reality of the kingdom, we can miss it entirely breaking through because we're looking in the wrong place. And second, we could dismiss the kingdom coming in because it appears to us as small and insignificant. Because our hearts are prone to cynicism and doubt, we can dismiss all the wonderful ways that God is coming to us as merely coincidence or happen chance. If there's a phrase that would sum up my heart for us today, it's this. Do not despise the days of small beginnings. It's pulled from a passage in Zechariah where Zechariah says this. Who dares despise the days of small things? Since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the whole earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. Which you all know what that means, right? We can move on. Okay, good. Now, so in context, the Jewish people have been exiled out of the land, and with it, their temple has been destroyed. But after they return um, back from exile, they begin to rebuild again. But the new Jerusalem that they've been building looks nothing like the old one. The old one was marked by beauty and splendor, and this one kind of just feels like subpar. And so they begin to get discouraged that what God is doing among them isn't really that important. And so God comes to them through the prophet of Zechariah and says, hey, don't despise this. I love to see the capstone, which is the first stone laid in the temple that would set the whole parameters for the rest of the building. He says, I love to see the work begin. Do not despise things as small. Susie Silk says this. The Lord is telling them that in their human efforts, They are doing something that they look down on now, but it's actually preceding the great thing that God is going to do. What they do not realize is that as they were rebuilding the temple, they were preparing the way for the Messiah to return. What they see as small and nothing, God sees as something great and miraculous that he is going to do. When they built this new temple, It would be the very temple that Jesus steps in to purify and make new. It is the very temple that Jesus would be raised up going to, um, uh, during large festivals coming to and hearing teachings about. It is the very very space that Jesus would operate in in their midst. This temple was a sign of the Messiah's coming. And so in every move of God, hear me in this, it always begins with small beginnings. The problem is, in our culture, We only value the influential, famous, and powerful. We always value them. Isn't it strange to you how when something happens, movie stars speak on things? Isn't that a rather strange phenomenon? Like, there's crisis breaking out. You know who I want to know who thinks about this? Brad Pitt. What does he think about this, right? It's like... What does he know about global crisis, right? You know what? That TikToker I follow, they're on to something here, right? What on earth is that about? We value the powerful and influential. We esteem their voices. Even if they're not even caught up in the mixture of what's actually happening, for some reason we give them preferential treatment just because people know them. We dismiss small things because we look down on them and we only value that which is um, big or influential. And each of us 
live underneath the tyranny of being big and important. We look down on a mundane, faithful life. A person who would just live quietly, love the people around them well, and die faithful to Jesus. That sounds kind of lame. We want to storm the, the hills. We want to become people of notoriety. We have these uh, delusions of grandeur that we could really be somebody. But what if being somebody meant just being exactly who you are, where you are? Do not despise the days of small beginnings. Brothers and sisters, we live in the danger of missing out on what God is doing among us because we are just simply seeing with the wrong set of eyes. My heart is that we would look at our lives, what God is doing in this community, not through the lens of human metrics, but with a vision of the kingdom to see all the ways that God is moving among us. And so there's two key ideas I want us to understand today about the kingdom of God. The first, the kingdom is a seed, and second, the kingdom is hidden. First, the kingdom is a seed. Jesus says this, then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and birds perched in its branches. Jesus wants us to think that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Mustard seeds are really not that fabulous. They're small almost imperceptible, easy to be just swept up and thrown away because they don't seem of any consequence. But when planted, they actually become quite large. That's a mustard tree. I know what you're thinking. It's pretty ugly, right? Can we be honest? Like if someone gave you that as a gift, you're like, thanks. Looks like a giant weed has overtaken my backyard. I think that's kind of the point, that the tree is kind of underwhelming. What's interesting is we think of trees of consequence, we think of like the great redwoods. You could drive your car through the base of that thing, you know what I mean? Or we think of like a mighty oak. Like that just like, yes, that has you know, some gravitas to it. Or like the beautiful aspens. And Jesus says, the mustard tree, right? And it's like, that? <laughs> Like, of all the trees we could choose, like, can we have, a, like, a, a forum? You know, I'm not even, like, a botanist, but that's got to be pretty low on the list. It was even hard to find pictures on Google of mustard trees because nobody's taking the photos of them. And so there are mustard trees here that we've named that because they look a lot prettier. That's not the one that Jesus is talking about. That's a Palestinian mustard tree. That. And Jesus says that is what the kingdom will come, become into. Now, as a reminder, Jesus says the kingdom is not the tree, but the seed that becomes the tree. And so the point that he's making is this. First, he wants us to take note of the seed's size. A mustard seed is really tiny. I got one here. You can't even see it. That's the point. It's tiny. It's incredibly small. It looks like a little freckle. <laughs> it is impossibly small. And so it is easy to be overlooked or dismissed. It almost got thrown away this morning by somebody in our church because they saw it and thought it was just trash on the ground. It's not. It's my friend. He's here with me. But it almost got thrown away. Now, um, this teaching is all coming off a significant moment. Jesus says the kingdom of God comes in the form of a seed. It comes in the form of a tiny moment. Jesus teaches this very moment after he's just healed a woman with an issue in her back. Um, this issue had left her like bent over. I don't know if it's scoliosis or something of the kind, but it caused her to be bent over her whole life, and Jesus prays for her, and she is healed. And it's after that moment that Jesus says the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is like a seed. One singular moment. Maybe in the economy of, of world power and empires and wars and economics, a lady getting her back healed seems rather small, but to Jesus, he says, the kingdom is breaking in, and you don't even see it. And so after a heated disagreement with the Pharisees, he turns to his disciples and tells them this parable, the kingdom comes small like a seed, like what you've just experienced. It's breaking in one seed at a time, one person at a time, one moment at a time. 
that all by itself it can seem rather small, but in the hands of Jesus, it becomes something altogether wonderful. The second thing we need to understand about seeds is they work slowly. Sowing seeds is not for the impatient, myself included, right? I'm not a farmer of any kind, trust me. But you have to toil and work and labor for weeks to cultivate a seed, to water it, not to overwater it, to give it the right amount of sun, not too much sun, right? They're kind of finicky. They're kind of fragile. And it takes all of this labor, and then weeks and weeks pass, and then finally, a little sprout comes through. And it's, woohoo! it's happening. But that's when you even get the good stuff there. Weeks later, finally, something of significance comes. And maybe sometimes not, right? There are even some fruit trees that you plant that take years before they produce fruit, just because, right? Planting seeds is not for the impatient. And we live in a moment where we want everything now. And so if something takes time, we dismiss it as inefficient or ineffective, but not realizing that if something takes the time to grow, it becomes mighty, powerful. You see, the kingdom of God always moves at the pace of relationship, and relationships move slow. The kingdom that Jesus is establishing is not of brick and mortar, but it's of people. And if the kingdom is about people, then it moves at the pace of relationships. The kingdom takes time. Third is that the kingdom is packed with potential. Jesus wants us to see that this tiny seed becomes a mighty tree, that there is a future packed within this small seed that you cannot see that will not be realized until some time passes by. And second, that this small seed will actually become a place of refuge. Notice the line that birds would perch up in its branches, that once begins as a seed will one day become a home. Now, there's all kinds of cool stuff that, uh, that Jesus is doing here and tying the imagery of, of a, a tree as a shelter as um, a way of God saying providing protection for the nations. We don't have the time to talk about that today. There's some really cool things he's doing there, but the idea is this, that within this small seed, is all of this packed-in potential. By popular demand, our boy Snodgrass is back with a fire quote, and here it is. Could what was happening with Jesus and his disciples really be the establishment of God's kingdom? Was not the kingdom supposed to be a mighty display of God's defeat and the removal of nations afflicting Israel? Jesus' miracles are nice, but where's the rest of the story? Such questions would have possibly gone through the mind of many of Jesus' hearers, whether friend or foe. The mustard seed similitude urges, possibly warns, that no one should be put off by what appears unimpressive. Like the tiny mustard seed which grows to a large plant, so the kingdom is present, even if hidden, unnoticed, or ignored, and its full revelation with its benefits will come. I want to root this in a story. The year is 1935, and Germany is under the force of Hitler and the Third Reich. During this time, followers of Jesus found themselves at a moment of immense pressure. Would they resist the empire that is breaking in, or would they succumb to this insurmountable force around them? Church after church, denomination after denomination begins to give their allegiance to the Third Reich and to this movement of, of Nazi Germany. And so a group of pastors and leaders come together, and they began a movement called the Confessing Church, committing to not give way to the cultural tide around them, but to remain faithful to Jesus no matter what. One of these men at the center of this movement was a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Burdened with a vision for faithfulness in a time of compromise, he started a training center for pastors called Finkenwald. And it is here that the great works of Bonhoeffer's life came forth, such as Life Together and The Cost of Discipleship, if you're familiar with those works. And a friend hears about what Dietrich is doing, and he gets a little worried. He's like, bro, I think you're taking this a little too seriously. 
So much so that he shows up at Finkenwald and says, like, hey, bro, chill out. You got to kind of calm down. Your ideas are pretty radical. Like, I read Life Together. Bro, that seems a little much. And so Bonhoeffer says, let's take a trip. So they hop in a boat, they row across a river, and they hike up a hill. And as they get to the top of the hill, they look down from the hill, and they see a Nazi training camp where soldiers are being equipped for war. And on the other side of the hill, they could see Finkenwald, this small little tiny seminary of pastors being trained to resist this massive army. And in this moment, Bonhoeffer turns to his friends and says, this, pointing to his seminary, must be stronger than that pointing to the army training camp. What ends up happening with Bonhoeffer, and he's ultimately killed by the empire he resisted. He lost his life for the vision he loved. Now today, Nazi Germany, Hitler, and the Third Reich have all fallen. The church, however, remains. A small group of committed people to the way of Jesus resisted an empire and the church of Jesus stands today. Nazi Germany, the Third Reich, an empire that seemed insurmountable and unstoppable is nothing but rubble, and the church of Jesus prevails today. Now, um, a second story I want to root this in is in the reality of the early church and the Roman Empire. So Paul finds himself in a Roman prison. And in doing so, in being in a Roman prison, he is looking on at this empire that seems to transcend and overcome all around it. There is nothing like the Roman Empire. There's even like a common joke going around now, but you're supposed to ask a guy how often he thinks about the Roman Empire, and it's like all the time, apparently. Um, I'm not too sure about that, but um, it's, this, it's this massive empire that the world has never seen before. And so, um, in this moment, God raises up a people to resist the empire of Rome. And what was seen as it could never fall, it could never uh, crumble, it actually did. Today, Rome, like Nazi Germany, is nothing but rubble. It is these places you can visit and see broken down pieces of. A group of disenfranchised women cultural rejects, and blue-collar fishermen change the world. And so in one moment, what is going on? <laughs> in one moment, um, we see Paul in prison looking on an empire, but all of the empire crumbled around him, and this man in prison, we still read his letters today. Right? Do not despise the days of small beginnings. Helmut, I can't say his last name, so I'm just going to leave it there, says this. What an unspeakable comfort it is to know that in the midst of man's mischief, in the midst of his scheming and bad speculations, his shaping and misshaping, his activism and his failures, there is still another stream of events um, flowing silently on that God is letting his seeds grow and achieve his ends. Point two, the kingdom is hidden. Again, he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked through the dough. The second image that Jesus calls to mind is that of yeast. We got any bakers in the room? Not a single one. Someone's being dishonest. Okay, there it is. All right, there we go. Thank you. I was like, don't be ashamed about baking. That's dope. Unless you're worried that people are going to start asking you to bake them things, then I understand. So I don't bake. But what I'm told is that you put a little yeast in with the flour, and yeast is what causes bread to rise, which you want it to do that unless you just want tortillas. Then, you know, that's what it's going to come out as is flat. And so for, for bread to rise, it needs yeast, but it doesn't need a lot. Apparently, they come in like little packets that you just like sprinkle a little bit in, and it works, the whole dough. Now, the image that Jesus uses here is that a little bit of yeast into 60 pounds of flour, which would be an enormous amount of bread, a lot of bread. The first thing I think Jesus wants us to see is that the yeast is hidden. The word in Greek for mixed in is actually the word crypto, which is where we get the word encrypted, meaning hidden. 
And so what Jesus wants us to see is that as the yeast is mixed in, it's hidden. If I mixed yeast into flour, there's no way you're di differentiating what part is yeast and what part is flour. That batch is done if you didn't want yeast in it, right? You just told, throw the whole thing away because there's no way. If I dropped raisins in there, you could easily, like, pick it out, right? But yeast mixes in, blends in, becomes hidden. And so it doesn't really look like yeast. Uh, yeast doesn't really look like anything. It just looks like another powdery substance. But if you put it in the bread, it will do its job, and soon you will see it begin to rise. In the same way, the kingdom is hidden. It appears ordinary easy to dismiss, but given time, you see it begin to rise. You see it begin to do what it was intended to do. The next thing about the yeast is that it's potent. It doesn't take very much, but it's permeating and advancing. Just a little bit of yeast works into 60 pounds of flour. Commentator Daryl Brock says this, here's the point, is the permeation of the presence of the kingdom. Jesus picks a huge amount of flour, for the illustration, and only a pinch of yeast eventually permeates the entire loaf. This, too, is inevitable. What starts out as an insignificant moment will cover the whole earth in the end. The idea is that the yeast is spreading throughout, causing all to rise. Again, another story. I can't tell a story without talking about the Moravians. Yes, we're doing it again. I don't care if you don't like it. Yes. And we're talking about Hernhut. That's Hernhut right there. It's not a place of prestige and power. There are no skyscrapers and millionaires. There's no stock exchange or politicians. It is a quaint little German town. And it is there that the kingdom of God began to break through. Our boy, Nicholas von Zindendorf, used this patch of land that was given to him to be a place of refuge for refugees from Moravia fleeing that place. And you would think, free land, followers of Jesus together, it must have been a utopia. <clears throat> Wrong! There was infighting and division, name-calling and blame-shifting. There was division and strife there. And so Zinzendorf said, this cannot continue. So what we're going to do is come together to pray and hope that brings unity. And they did. And for a long time, nothing happened. Until one day, the Spirit of God broke down all of their hearts, and they became a unified people. They overlooked their theological differences and became the people of God. Now, the Moravian Church um, became this community that uh, was sold out for Jesus. Now, when we think of the Moravian community, we could think, oh, maybe there was thousands of people there. The Moravian community never grew over 200 people. That's important. Two men in the group hear about uh, slaves that are unable to be reached with the gospel because they are in slavery. And so these two men sell themselves into slavery so that they can go and give the gospel to these slaves. And as they uh, bid their friends and family goodbye, they say, may the lamb receive the reward he is due, and they sell themselves into slavery. Ultimately, these men see revival break out among these people who are enslaved, and the kingdom of God breaks in in that small community. Part of the Moravian movement, too, was that a 24-hour prayer movement was birthed out of them. They prayed Someone was praying from the Moravian community every hour for an hour for 24 hours for 100 years. Mind you, the, the, the group was never more than 200 people. But day and night, day and night, people were praying in this community that fueled their missions movement. William Wilberforce, who is known for being a catalyst for the abolishment of slavery, um, um, when, when being contested with this thing, other politicians in parliament would come to him and say, there's no way we could free the slaves. There would be anarchy. What he did is he took these two men's story about going and taking the gospel to enslaved people, and he used that in his speech to parliament to abolish slavery, saying, here's an example of what will happen if we set these people free. Good things will break out. And so we see the Moravians here in the movement of abolishing a slavery. 
There's also the story of John Wesley, who famously founded Methodism. Um, on his boat trip to America, they take, this, um, they take on this horrible storm, and in the middle of the storm, he sees these two Moravian missionaries totally at peace in the middle of a chaotic storm. And he realizes, my faith is not like theirs. It has been shaken. And so he learns from the Moravians. And of John Wesley's life, he's one of the greatest revivalists to ever be known, that, that thousands came to Jesus because of his life. And there was also George Whitfield, who heard about the Moravian community, went to a prayer meeting with them, was met by the Spirit of God, and became one of the other greatest revivalist preachers of that time. Two of the most powerful voices of a generation were impacted by a small community in the middle of nowhere. And that's not all. There's also our boy William Carey, who is known, and listen to this name, the father of the modern mission movement. You want that on your you know, business card, on your plaque in front of you. He looked at the community of the Moravians and said, if this small community could be doing this, why isn't the evangelical church doing more? And that spurred him on into this. Remember, a group of less than 200 people have so far started a 100-year prayer, a 100-year 24-7 prayer movement, were catalysts in the abolishment of slavery, and power the two greatest revivalists of their time, oh yeah, and catalyzed the modern mission movement from the middle of nowhere. God loves to begin his work in small places with unlikely people. And if this is true for this one small community, and if this is true of the kingdom of God, hear this, it is mostly true of Jesus. First, in his life. Where does Jesus come from? Nazareth. You would never even know that place existed apart from Jesus. No one's here just taking trips to Nazareth for no reason. Even in Jesus' time, when, when Nathaniel hears about Jesus coming, he hears, there's this man, he could be the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. His first response is not, dope, the Messiah's here. His first response is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is Jesus' hometown. This is the place he reps, the middle of Podunk, nowhere. One scholar says this, Justo Gonzalez, he says this, the one who is speaking has just shown his mighty power in the episode in the synagogue. But he was born a poor and small mustard seed in a humble manger. As a child, he had to go into exile in Egypt. And he is preparing to face the most formidable powers of evil. And in that confrontation, he will seem weak and insignificant like a mustard seed or a bit of yeast. Yet, in that very smallness, he will be making a way to his final triumph. Jesus is the yeast and the mustard seed of the kingdom of God. Now, it's not only in Jesus' life, but also in his death. Again, our boy Snodgrass with the heat says this, we see it later with the crucifixion. And this dynamic seems to be a regular practice of God. Like the cross, the mustard seed parable is a challenge to human perception and judgment about smallness and significance. We see through a glass darkly and too often fail to recognize a seed planted by God. We should expect and implement mustard seed thinking, neither disregarding insignificance nor doubting what God can do and does do with small beginnings. The Christological implications of this parable should not be ignored. It is in Jesus' word and work that the kingdom has made its entrance. Jesus himself had small beginnings. And the cross seemed to be a defeat, but in actuality, the birth of the kingdom was, was there. And so in closing, I want us to take a moment to think about how we respond to God. And here's my invitation for us. Could we become a mustard seed community? What would it look like for us to be a community of the mustard seed? Small, but powerful and potent. Hidden, but slowly permeating every square inch of the city. I see three invitations for us. First, an invitation to trust. To trust that the kingdom is advancing and will come, regardless of what we see. Again, Daryl Brock. Jesus tells these parables to call for trust. He is building the kingdom, 
and people should trust God that it will come. Even though the movement starts out looking so insignificant, God's plan is advancing. His kingdom will come, and nothing will stop it from coming in its fullness. First, an invitation to trust. Second, an invitation to see that God is working even in our small, ordinary moments. Fred Craddock, do not therefore be discouraged over what seems to be a lack of success. God is at work. Just as a seed and leaven carry their futures within them, so discern the act and do not be depressed by the opposition or by the immensity of the task. It is true that Jerusalem and death lie ahead for Jesus, but God is at work. Think of the mustard seed and the leaven and be hopeful, for you have participated in small acts that will affect lives far beyond this time and place. Third, an invitation to pray. David Fringe. Do not despise your small prayer gatherings. Every major revival has its origins with a small band of intercessors faithfully crying out. Small gatherings precede big breakthroughs. When we gather to worship and pray regardless of size, we convene the very court of heaven. Our prayer gatherings are the most important and powerful gatherings in our city an invitation to pray. Now, lastly, I do have a sense that there's people in the room who'll be saying, this sounds great, but not for me. Like other people could do that. Bonhoeffer, the Moravian community, right? All these people, Zinzendorf, whomever, they can do these things. Julio Rubal, but not me. I hope you've seen throughout this sermon, and this is just a small glimpse. Guys, we could geek out for years about the people that God uses. But do you know the kind of people that he uses? He doesn't use the powerful, those of esteem, those of influence. He uses the willing. He uses the humble. He uses those who are looking for him. God uses broken and bent tools to build his kingdom. That's who God is in the business of using. Paul says it like this in his letter to the Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. In the pocket in front of your seat is a mustard seed. This kind of feels like an Oprah moment. I'm not going to lie to you. Look under your chairs, a new car. Right? It does feel like that. But there's a mustard seed. You probably didn't see it. You like that, right? You probably didn't see it. You probably didn't notice it, but this is there. This is our gift to you. And if you're in the front row, it's under your seat. Sorry, there's no pocket in front of you. And I want to invite you to carry this with you. And not just like toss it in your backpack to hope to find it three years from now. Like put it in a place that's kind of annoying. In your pocket, um, in your purse, in your wallet, on the dash of your car, somewhere where you'll see it. And here's the invitation for you. That when you see it, you would ask the Lord, what part will I play in the story that God is writing for our city? God, what will you do with my life? It seems maybe small, rather insignificant in the grand scheme of things, but this, you say, Jesus, can become a mighty tree. This, you say, can permeate the whole earth. This, you say, can grow into something of consequence. And so let this mustard seed be a symbol for your life. And I'm going to ask you to carry this with you for the rest of our series. We only have four weeks, so don't think I'm going to ask you in three months from now if you still have this thing. But I'm asking you just to carry it around with you. I'm going to ask you that when you see it, when I come across it, that you would just ask, pray a simple prayer. Lord, what do you have for me? And begin to watch as God begins to stir things in you. And so would you join me in standing in a time of response?
Do not despise the days of small beginnings. Great moves of God are born in places like ours, in communities like ours, with people like you. And right now is a moment where a single act of obedience can change the trajectory of a city. One man in Bonhoeffer, one man in Julio Robal, one man in Zinzendorf changed the trajectory for thousands. And I believe God is wanting to do a similar moment now. And so what I want to ask you to do is if you feel the Spirit stirring you right now, you feel, as the biblical authors say, deep calling out to deep. Something is just resonating deep in your person. And you want to start saying yes to partnering with God with what he's doing in the earth. We want to ask you to respond. And how we're going to ask you to respond is just by coming forward here to the front and just putting your hands open as a sign and saying, God, I'm willing to be used by you. I want to be used by you. And we're going to have people who come and who pray for you and who bless the very work that God is doing in you right now. So our worship team is going to play. And as they do, I want to invite you to respond with an embodied yes to Jesus. Yes to being used by him for his kingdom and for his glory. Because brothers and sisters, remember, the kingdom of God is in your midst.